If you've been enjoying the Panorama podcast, you can subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app. If you do, please consider giving it a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, wherever you may get it. Positive reviews really do help. You can also support us directly at patreon.com slash panorao, or check out our website, panorao.com. There you will find direct links to the podcast, articles, and news about upcoming Panorao projects. In addition, please visit our YouTube channel. There's plenty more content in the pipeline. And now, on to the show. Are we in a collapse? When I say that, or rather, when I ask that question, I'm asking, are these the early days of a societal collapse? How do you know when you're going through one? Or is it something that you can only tell with retrospect? This question has been important to me for a long time. Like most of the questions that I ask, I think I first got curious about it going through a natural disaster when I was a little kid. You see, I'm old enough to have gone through a disastrous hurricane called Hurricane Andrew that just about wiped out the southernmost parts of South Florida, specifically the area of Homestead and Kendall. Going through that experience gave me a taste of what I expect the end times would look like. The police and the firefighters were nowhere to be found. That's because their houses were destroyed just like everyone else's. Looters came out of the woodwork to go through the wreckage of other people's houses to try and salvage whatever valuables they could, be it gold, jewelry, money, guns, that kind of thing. And many people returned back to the remains of their houses to camp out there to try and stop those looters from taking whatever was left. I vividly remember driving through the wreckage of what used to be a city, maybe six months after the disaster happened, and still seeing signs hand-painted on the outside of people's houses. There's one in particular that I'll never forget, and it said, this property protected by Smith & Wesson. The implication being, if you try to steal from the wreckage of this house, you will be shot. This kind of general Mad Max apocalyptic lawlessness went on for a couple of weeks before finally being contained and controlled by the U.S. National Guard. But what if the National Guard was not able to respond? What would have happened? It makes me think that in a case like that, we would see what happens in the aftermath of any societal collapse. That is, new centers of power would arise, and the government would shift. Perhaps it would change from a representative democracy, the kind of which we all know and love, to something different, more like an autocracy or a dictatorship. It was because of those experiences in my early childhood that I got interested in this particular part of Roman history. That is to say, the end of Roman history. If I got the flavor of an apocalypse, and I wanted to know what would have happened 
had the National Guard never showed up. Couldn't I just study a real apocalypse? The total disintegration of a once organized, strong, and complicated empire. Couldn't I just study the collapse of the Roman Empire to get a better understanding of what happened, or what might lie in store for us living in this historical moment? Like with most things, when I started looking into the actual collapse of the Roman Empire, I found that it was much more complicated and difficult a subject than I originally anticipated. Before I started my formal training as a historian, I was susceptible to all the same kind of pop theories about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that had been floating around for decades. For example, one popular theory that I hear repeated again and again is that the Roman Empire collapsed because of their extensive use of lead in the plumbing system. You see, the Romans relied on aqueducts for the most part. These structures spanned for miles, usually leading from a water source somewhere at a high elevation, steadily descending as they conducted water into urban centers, where it would be distributed in things like fountains or baths open to the public. These aqueducts are famous, and it's not really readily apparent how they conducted the water. You have to imagine that the part of the aqueduct that actually carries the water is a big lead pipe. This lead pipe can stretch for miles and miles and miles before branching and diverting into a series of smaller and smaller lead pipes. The Romans didn't just use lead in aqueducts, though. In fact, lead was sometimes used as a sweetening agent in certain desserts and pastries, as well as as a kind of ancient form of makeup, kind of like ancient foundation. If a Roman matron wanted to powder her nose, she certainly was using a compound made with lead. All of this led some scholars to suppose that widespread lead poisoning was actually the cause for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The only problem with this theory is that lead usage in Rome was extensive for centuries before the decline and fall of the empire. It's not as if one day in the 5th century the entire empire flipped a switch and turned to lead. Rather, the Romans had been exposing themselves to lead since the earliest days of its empire. Lead could be just as responsible for the rise of the Roman Empire as it was for its fall. Of course, this isn't the only bizarre theory floating around out there in the popular space that explains why the empire finally collapsed. Perhaps one of the most famous reasons given was given by that giant of the field, Edward Gibbon, in his seminal work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon believed it wasn't lead that caused the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but rather a mass turn to Christianity. That somehow Christianity and its doctrine of afterlife and salvation led people to become disinterested in maintaining and growing their own empire. This theory also has its problems. For example, 
In those territories that would eventually be ceded to barbarian tribes, like the Goths, Christianity was the dominant religion both before and after the transition. That is to say, the Goths themselves were Christian by this point, albeit Aryan Christians. Still, this shouldn't make too much of a difference. Aryan Christians had the same beliefs about the afterlife as did those Orthodox Christians throughout the rest of the empire. If Christianity were really the cause of the decline and fall of the empire, then it should be working against both the Goths and the Romans equally. And yet somehow, it doesn't. The situation gets even more complicated the more that one digs into the particulars. For example, before I started studying Roman imperial history, I was under the impression that in 476 AD, when the last Roman emperor was deposed, the Roman Empire, as a political organization, completely vanished from the face of the earth. But that isn't true at all. The eastern half of the empire continued on quite happily for centuries to come. From the perspective of somebody living in Constantinople in 476 AD, it was just another Tuesday. Nothing had changed. The emperor in the east still sat on the throne. The Roman army still went on campaign. Goods and services continued to be provided in the city. And nothing would change for another thousand years. But if you were living in the former Roman province of Gaul, then the change became quite noticeable indeed. That's because, as I've gotten older, I've learned that the apocalypse, or the collapse, whatever you might want to call it, is ultimately a local phenomenon. Think of the example of the end of World War II. If you were a committed Nazi, an officer in the SS, from your perspective, as the defense of the capital became more and more hopeless, you were, in fact, living through the apocalypse. The Russian people, again, from the perspective of a committed Nazi, were an inferior people. And watching them roll through the streets, taking revenge for all of the various war crimes that were committed in their own territory, would have been an outcome that was both inconceivable as well as brutally apocalyptic. This explains why many Nazis preferred to commit suicide than live through the post-apocalypse that was to come. But at that exact same time, if you were living in New York, you wouldn't be living through the apocalypse at all. Instead, you would be living in an advanced, industrialized city and taking advantage of all of the modern conveniences it had to offer. I guess my vision of the apocalypse as a kid was a universal one, something like the Christian idea of the second coming, or perhaps a nuclear apocalypse, the idea that the apocalypse would be felt everywhere equally at the same time. Of course, no such apocalypse has ever struck the earth, as far as we know. I suppose just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it couldn't happen in the future. But even still, it makes me wonder whether or not the people alive at the time in former Roman territories knew that they were living through some sort of massive change. Well, it turns out the answer to that question 
is almost certainly yes. You see, it turns out that we actually have records from the time period of the collapse of the Western Empire. One that is particularly useful are the letters of a man named Sidonius Apollinaris. He was a church father, a local elite, somebody of senatorial rank, who was born in the capital of Lugdunum, modern-day Lyon. His father was the prefect of Gaul under the emperor Valentinian III. In his letter, he talks about his political rank as if it is a matter of birth. He saw nothing wrong with the idea of wielding political power based on his connections to the emperor through marriage. Indeed, throughout his life, his political position continued to improve even as the fortunes of the empire dwindled. He was honored with the title of urban prefect of Rome and afterwards became a patrician and achieved the rank of senator. All of this would come crashing down when the Goths finally deprived the Romans of control over the province of Gaul. This change is reflected in Sidonius's letters, some of which were published before the collapse of the last Western Emperor, and many others after. The tone of those letters after the collapse of the empire in 476 AD changes to one of lament. Take, for example, this one, written to a fellow bishop named Faustus. This letter is dated to 477, just a year after the end of Roman control over the province of Gaul. Sidonius says, Your old loyalty to a friend and your old mastery of diction are both unchanged. I admire equally the hardiness of your letters and the perfect manner for their expression. But I think, and I am sure, that you will concur with me, that at the present juncture, when the roads are no longer secure, owing to the movement of the peoples, the only prudent and safe course is to abandon for the present any regular exchange of messages. We must be less assiduous correspondents. We must learn the art of keeping silence. This is a bitter deprivation, and hard to bear when a friendship is as close as ours. It is imposed upon us not by casual circumstance, but by causes at once definite, inevitable, and diverse in their origin. Sidonius goes on to complain that letter carriers are not safe on the highway, that they are often harassed, stopped, and searched, looking for contraband, and also to know the contents of their letters by the various powers that be. We are to assume that the powers that be are the new occupying Goths, rather than Roman officials. But this change in letter-writing frequency is only one of several changes to occur during this time period, and arguably for a century or so beforehand. As it turns out, much ink has been spilled on the topic of what we, in classics, call euergotism. Euergotism was a practice that the Romans engaged in. It was a way in which wealthy individuals could publicly display their wealth and gain for themselves a public reputation. Euergotism is a Greek word that means good works. If you, as a wealthy citizen, wanted to make a name for yourself 
in a bid to run for public office, or perhaps to promote your business. You could do that by putting on public spectacles, or feasts, or making sure the local temple to Apollo had a new roof when it needed it. All of these are examples of public euergotism. But as the economic and military situation deteriorated in certain parts of the empire, we see an almost total lack of euergotism. Instead, this former function of wealthy citizens gets co-opted by the church. Now, instead of clients looking to their patrons for sportula, little bits of food or money to help them get through the day, they could go to Catholic Mass and literally be fed whenever the Eucharist was celebrated. Those former wealthy elites who would have spent their money on public euergotism oftentimes found solace inside the church, oftentimes claiming very high ranks in the new church hierarchy. But for those that didn't, a more common way to avoid the collapse of society going on outside their gates would be to simply drop out of society. This became popular in the third century when the Roman Empire goes through a 50-year period of civil war known as the crisis of the third century. During that time period, numerous people will all claim to be emperor, hold the position for as little as a month, only to be assassinated later. This cycle of electing new emperors only to dispose of them quickly thereafter led to a widespread devaluation of the title emperor. This is why when a new quote-unquote emperor would show up in a town and demand that that town provide a certain amount of manpower because the new emperor was raising an army in order to fight some usurper in some far-flung corner of the empire, many people chose to drop out of society rather than to heed the call. Those who did own land and had money could retreat to their country villas. There, they could provide sanctuary to their poorer clients who would promise their former patrons work in exchange for safety. Wealthy elites like this could also afford to hire private security, not relying on state resources at all. These local elites, like Sidonius Apollinaris, often retained their role inside of the local government and their rank as senator or prefect, while simultaneously ceasing to perform any of the functions that those offices entitled them to. We have to imagine governmental bodies and organizations like the Roman Senate, aside from doing the actual business of government, hold a tremendous ceremonial role inside of society. Similar to the British aristocracy of the last several centuries, British aristocrats were expected to serve in the military in the officer class and also to be intimately involved with government in their own House of Parliament, the House of Lords. While this trend has waned as of late, one can still see its roots even in modern British society. All of this leads me back to what we see today in my own society. I can't help but be curious 
when I talk to young college students, and I ask them, what are your goals in life? If it's to make a lot of money, why? Most students will look at me and tell me, I want to make a lot of money so that I can have freedom, the freedom to do whatever I want to do, to be done, to be able to go where I want, travel where I want, and live where I want. And listening to that story over and over and over again only makes me think of my own college years, when I held the exact same beliefs. The point of a job is to be able to make a lot of money, and if you are one of the very lucky few who makes enough money, then you too can drop out of society and be done. When I ask those same students if any of them have any interest in public life, the answer is usually a resounding no. And of course, when I look at my own behavior, I have plenty of political opinions. But when was the last time that I personally went to a town planning meeting or engaged in anything that could be considered public life, at least in the Roman sense of the word? When was the last time that I registered my concerns with the mayor of my city? When was the last time that I took an interest in planning and zoning? When was the last time that I ran for office in an attempt to fix any of the problems that I might complain about? Of course, like many others, the answer is never. And perhaps this was the greatest threat to the Roman Empire, ultimately. More so than military anarchy, mislaid battle plans, or political intrigue, Perhaps the thing that was most responsible for ending the Roman Empire was a massive bout of apathy, a widely held belief that no individual could right the sinking ship, so we shouldn't even try. There's two ways to think about this, one that is profoundly pessimistic and the other one optimistic. I prefer to take the optimistic view. If we can identify this as a problem, and the answer is action, should we not then act? I'll leave it for you guys to do. In the meantime, I'm going to tend to my crops in the backyard. You've been listening to the Ponorel Podcast. I'm still Matt Lupu, surviving the apocalypse. <laughs>